So this morning I'd just like to continue with some of the reflections that we've been doing in this first week and to focus this morning on the third foundation of mindfulness, the contemplation of mind. And perhaps to give a sense of why this is such an incredibly significant and important foundation in the practice. And to begin with, I'd really decide to read to you what the Buddha said about the contemplation of mind in the Satipatthana Sutta. He says, and how bhikkhus does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as and mind unaffected by lust, as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate, as mind affected by hate. And understands mind unaffected by hate, as mind unaffected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion, as mind affected by delusion. And mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. Understands contracted mind as contracted mind. Distracted mind as distracted mind. Understands exalted mind as exalted mind. And and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. And it goes on and on. You know, understanding concentrated mind as concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated. And he ends this first part of this reflection as understanding liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. Now, it's very interesting, the Satipatthana Sutta, because first there is kind of laid out the sort of instructions, the, the bare contemplations, in a way, the road map, I would say. And then for any of you who've ever read this discourse, each of the contemplations is then followed by a second paragraph. And the title of that second paragraph is Insight. So I think what is actually put forward here is that it's quite possible to contemplate your mind without any insight at all. I think this is quite true. So it's almost like for the slow learners amongst us, you know, he adds in this second paragraph in capital letters, insight, just in case we miss that piece. So he said, what are the insights meant to come? In this contemplation, he says, in this way, abiding, contemplating the mind internally, contemplating the mind externally, or contemplating the mind both internally and externally, or abides contemplating the mind in its arising factors and contemplating the mind in its vanishing factors, or contemplating the mind in both its arising and vanishing, or else mindfulness, that there is mind, just that, that there is mind, 
is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness and abides independent, not clinging to anything. This is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind as mind. Now, some of these insight pieces I'd like to explore a little bit later on in the talk because at first they can sound sort of mysterious. I think what's very important to understand that in this third foundation, the contemplation of mind, it's actually meant in a very specific way. You know, so it's not really about contemplation of thoughts or images. The way it's really put forward is really to contemplate the mind in terms of the state of mind, the emotional tone, we might say, or the mood of the mind, the climate of the mind, mental states. Now, I know sometimes when people hear us talking about mental states, it can all sound kind of like a little bit bizarre, like what is a mental state? You know, how do I know I have a mental state? Do I have one? Well, I think I could say with some assurance that we all have a state of mind right now. And are you aware of what that state of mind is? We're probably also aware, and I think we can say this with some assurance too, that the state of our mind, our mental states, our moods, they change constantly through the day. Now some of our mental states are quite historical in a way. Um, they're part almost of what we would call our personality. They're very familiar to us. And it is why some people are prone to describe themselves as a type. You know, some people say, oh, I'm an aversive type, or I'm a greed type, or I'm a delusion type, or I'm an anxious type. I mean, personally, I've, I find... Uh, that whole vocabulary very problematic <laughs> because I'm never quite sure how anybody can just be one type, you know, or only have one mental state. Um, and I think there's a real danger in kind of establishing your identity or describing your identity simply through a repetition of particular mental states. I think there's a terrible danger in that. But it is true that because of various conditions in our life, various imprints in our being, that we are more prone to some mental states than others. So some people might experience that they're much more prone to anxiety, for example, than to um, uh, dullness. You know, there's different ways of kind of being prone. Some are historical, but also if we really, really look at our mind and what our mind is doing in a day, we see how many of our mental states are just fleeting and momentary. They're, they're like the changing weather systems here. You know, we can go from feeling contracted to feeling spacious, for feeling aversive to feeling incredibly sort of tender and warm in moments. Now, there is also, I think, a little bit of a kind of misperception, and often mental states, we often only list the negative ones. 
I mean, in truth, there are many, many lovely, beneficial, wholesome, and skillful states of mind, um, inspiring states of mind, spaciousness, kindness, calmness, receptivity, collectedness, gatheredness. All of these are states of mind that we actually do cultivate in the practice. But there are many truly difficult states of mind. And I think most of us would recognize that there's, there's so many things that can torment us in this life. You know, difficult people and situations, difficult events, pain in our bodies, obsessions in our, our mind. There's a lot of difficult things in our life. But I don't think anything can torment us quite so much as our own mind. And just as there are many lovely events and experiences in this, in this life that bring so much happiness, I also think that there is nothing that can actually bring so much happiness as a well-trained and gathered, bright, aware mind. Now the Buddha clearly, and in his teaching, there's a tremendous significance and emphasis that is given to being aware of your mind, to being mindful of your mind. And as the Buddha, you know, the Buddha, that the mind is the forerunner of all things, all our speech, all our acts, all our choices. And as they put it, you know, to speak or act with an unclear mind is to have sorrow follow us. Also put it that to speak or act with a clear mind, that happiness follows us like a shadow. Mental states are very much, the state of our mind is very much the forerunner of the kind of thoughts, the flavor of our thoughts, the flavor of our words, the kind of choices and acts we engage in. For example, you will see that if the mind is agitated, it, it doesn't just kind of sit there inert. I mean, the, the nature of an agitated state of mind is to push us. It's to push us. So we get busy when the mind is agitated. You see it in the body, you know, how, how active the body gets, whether it just can't sit still or whether the whole house is being kind of explored and prowled. When the, when the mind is agitated, it produces a lot of thinking. It's very simple. You know, when, when the mind is dull, when the mental state is dull, what kind of choices do you make? What kind of acts, what kind of effort do you engage in? You know, you can see when the mental state is dull, it creates a corresponding effect in the thoughts and the choices. Often, well, you know, I think I'll just go to bed. I won't sit. You know, when the mental state is aversive, it doesn't often have thoughts of loving kindness. Instead, it will be irritable. It will be intolerant. It will find everything that's imperfect and wrong, inwardly and outwardly. So it produces streams of thought that are in line with the mental state. But equally notice, when the mental state is calm, when the state of mind is calm, notice how that also affects the thought patterns the kind of acts, the kind of movements that are engaged in. 
Notice when the mind is calm or spacious or bright, how much there is much less dwelling. There's much less stickiness in the mind. There's much less tendency towards obsession and preoccupation. Which is why in the practice, you know, very much in the practice, we are cultivating those states of calmness, of brightness and gladness because it does actually liberate the mind. Now, Nyanapanikatera, in contemplating the mind, he put it out in this kind of really interesting, what I find to be an interesting formula. He said the first step is to know the mind. The second step is to shape the mind. And the third step is to liberate the mind. Now, these three steps are very interwoven. And, of course, they begin with the first one, of knowing the mind. Now, that doesn't mean just a vague kind of knowing, you know, but it actually means being very, very attuned, alert, mindful of the mind moment by moment, to know the shape of your mind. Now, of course, in the beginning of retreat, you, you, you know, some of the mental states are, are kind of really in your face right from the beginning in the form of the hindrances. These are mental states, you know, dullness, restlessness, aversion, craving. These are all, you know, mental states of, of agitation. So in a way, in the beginning of retreat, you really don't have much choice, but in a sense, to know the state of your mind. But as some of these more extreme or heavy mental states start to soften, it's actually like the practice needs to get more subtle to know the state of your mind. When you begin a sitting, when you end a sitting, when you begin a walking, when you end a walking, when you stand in the lunch line or waiting to wash your dishes, when you hear the bell go in the morning, These are all moments when it's really useful to pause and just to ask yourself, what is the state of my mind? The simple knowing of that is so critical because when we don't know, we're often in a place of unconsciousness where the mental state is then governing the acts and the choices and outside of a retreat, the speech. Knowing the state of of our mind allows the possibility of wise response, of wise effort, of asking what is needed. Sometimes it's useful just to be able to name it. You know, this is agitation. This is aversion. This is calm. This is spaciousness. It's as important to name and to notice the lovely as it is to name and notice that which is not so lovely. There's often a lot of clues to what state of mind is there. And one of the biggest clues to the state of mind is the continuity of thinking. 
you know, if you find that, you, you know, you have a certain kind of thought loop happening, you know, you're, you're dwelling upon something that's happened in the past, or you have a thought loop of fantasy about the future, or, you know, there's a kind of inner voice which is kind of like really just kind of complaining or, you know, yeah, complaining endlessly about the world. That continuity of thinking is a very strong clue, a very strong message that almost has written upon it, look underneath the thought processes. Look underneath and really ask yourself, what is the state of mind in this moment? One time someone someone here told me when they were in a very restless state of mind, you know, and, you know, doing what restless states of mind do, they get busy. This is what restless states of mind do. You know, they get busy. So, you know, they were out reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher. And the first thing, the first instruction they saw on the fire extinguisher said, aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. Aim the nozzle at the base. And it suddenly, they said they suddenly struck them. This, this was actually the best instruction they could get. You know, aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. And the base of the fire was the agitation. And that was where the, the, the nozzle of the mindfulness really need to be aimed. The second step that Nyanapanika talks about is to shape the mind. Shape the mind. That's very interesting. You know, some people tell me they have a lot of objections to this idea of shaping the mind. You know, that they would rather... Uh, you know, it, that it kind of smacks of manipulation or, you know, some kind of uh, idea of how the mind should look like or too much doing. And some people say, well, no, it's just about allowing. It's just about allowing. It's just about uh, a kind of more choiceless allowing of what's there. You know, in some element, that's true. But I think it's also important to recognize that in every moment of our life, our mind is being shaped by something. It's being shaped by something. It's being shaped by thoughts, being shaped by memories, being shaped by emotions, being shaped by reactions. When the mind is shaped by that which is more unconscious or unmindful, then actually our thoughts and acts and choices will be also unmindful and unconscious. The shaping of the mind, I think it really points to this aspect of the practice where meditation is really translated as bhavana, to bring into being, to cultivate, to nurture. And in a very real way, I think you can see that this is what we are doing in our practice all the time. We are cultivating, we are bringing into being, we are nurturing all that is kind of skillful, wholesome, conducive to our own well-being, the well-being of others. We're bringing into being more ethics, more integrity, more calmness, more compassion, more kindness. And this is what is meant by shaping the mind. So part of knowing, part of knowing, is actually wise discernment. And it's the capacity to distinguish within this range of mental states that we have what is wholesome, skillful, and helpful, and wise, and what is unwholesome, unskillful, 
unhelpful and unwise. Now that can sound like, you know, really kind of like, well, do things really fit so neatly, neatly into those camps? So don't try and pick every part of your mental state and say, well, is that wholesome? I'm not sure. You know, it looks kind of wholesome and maybe it's not wholesome. But it's learning to develop that discerning quality that can distinguish between what is skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome. What is the guideline? Well, we can be pretty sure that unskillful, unwholesome, or unhelpful states of mind will lead to suffering. They will actually lead to more unskillful, more unwholesome, more unhelpful. We can also be, I think, fairly confident that the wholesome and skillful and the helpful states of mind, their effect on quite an immediate level is to lessen suffering and struggle and torment. So this can actually be approached as an, it's approached as an investigation, as an exploration. First, to know the state of mind. You know, that's important. Is this dullness? Is this contractedness? Is this spaciousness? Is it helpful? Is it wise? Is it unhelpful? If is it unwise? If we can make that discernment, actually, this is really in a way the kindergarten of wisdom, isn't it? Because then we know in a way our path, what it is that we're being asked to let go of and what it is that we're being asked to cultivate and to nurture. This can sound like a lot of doing, but in a real sense, this actually becomes very intuitive. It becomes very naturalized. You know, you start to see the aversive or the agitated mind, and there is that inner acknowledgement that says, this is just unhelpful. This is just unskillful, and I know that it leads to suffering. And there can be that sense, how do I calm the agitation? How can I begin to let go of the agitation? How can I cultivate the calmness in my body and my mind? You might start to see like the aversive mind, you know, in its thoughts and its attitudes. And this, it starts to become much more intuitive of knowing this is actually unskillful. It's unhelpful because it leads directly to suffering. What is, what can be nurtured and cultivated in that moment to actually almost change the shape of the mind? Kindness, forgiveness, generosity softness. We're learning not to so much strategize, but actually to have our hearts and our minds set in this one direction that the Buddha talks about when he says this path has just one outcome, which is the liberation of the heart. So in a way, contemplating the mind and shaping the mind is really aligning the practice with that one teaching that this path has just one direction and one outcome, which is the liberation of the heart. In in a very real way, when Yoyanapanika talks about knowing the mind, shaping the mind, liberating the mind, these are not separate. You can see that when when we, we cultivate that which is really liberating, the calmness, the presence, the connectedness, the sensitivity. In a way, in that mind, in that moment, the mind is liberated. 
It's liberated from the hindrances. It's liberated from confusion. It's liberated from distractedness. It's liberated from contractedness. It is called the release of the mind. Now, it's very interesting. Another way of kind of being more mindful of mental states is the kind of activity of the mental state, the effect. There's a certain looping pattern that happens through mental states. For example, you know, as I mentioned, like, so just take, for an example, an aversive mental state. Well, it tends to be very productive in thoughts, doesn't it? I mean, if you're feeling really irritable, I mean, it's really endless how much there is to be irritated with. You know, oh, the weather, my cushion, you know, my body, my sitting part. And you can see that the more thoughts that, that there are that are flavored by aversion, that it kind of goes in a circle and then it solidifies the aversion, doesn't it? I mean, it's not like all those thoughts make the aversion less. They just make the aversion or the ill will stronger. And so when the aversion gets strengthened, then the thoughts also get strengthened. They become more and more real, more and more solid, and you can feel this looping system going on. It's like a closed circle that there doesn't feel any way out of. But there's something else that happens that is part of that process of solidifying, and it's kind of the picking up of self-view. Like if you notice, like if there's an aversive mental state and then it starts to be very critical and very judgmental, very irritated, then there's often the piece of self-view that comes in, isn't it? I am such a judgmental person. I am, you know, such a lousy meditator because I'm so critical, you know, so harsh. I am such a judgmental person. Now notice how the self-view then starts to interact with the mental states and the thoughts and makes it much stronger. I mean, if you look at it like, like with depression, you know, how often depression, you know, tends to have these very bleak thoughts and perceptions. You know, the world is so miserable. You know, everything is so sad or so meaningless that those thoughts come around to, to circle and, and strengthen the mental state. But, you know, the most, most lethal part is the self-view. I'm worthless. You know, I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. Now, another person could have, you know, with a different self-view, could have the same thoughts. I mean, you know, most people, you know, do have a version visit at some point. You know, but if you don't have the self-view that I'm such a, a sort of mean and miserable person, you know, there's much less power in the thoughts. So, in a way, it's kind of really looking at the way that self-view, I am, is really reinforced and solidified by the being lost in the mental state and the production of the mental state. In a way, a lot of mindfulness practice is about cutting this looping tendency. You know that reminder? To see the mind as mind. To see a thought as a thought rather than feeding the mental state. It's almost cultivating a kind of creative disbelief in some of our thoughts. You know, you can see that story being built, you know, the pictures being painted, you know, the world is like this, you know, and you are like that and I am like that. You know, to somehow a little bit of creative disbelief 
is a great help. You know, am I? Am I? Are you? Am I always judgmental? Am I always agitated? I don't think anybody is always agitated. They'd probably be dead by now. Am I? To just a little bit of creative disbelief. Now we do, you know, I mentioned how in the Satipatthana Sutta, how the contemplation mind has these two pieces. One is the kind of roadmap to contemplate the mind, and the other part is the insight. What we're meant to understand, you know, through contemplating the mind, understanding that it is the actual, not the contemplation itself that liberates but the insight born of that contemplation that liberates. I mean, because if you look at it, quite honestly, I mean, you know, it's like we contemplate our body throughout our whole lives, don't we? I mean, and the older you get, the more you do it. And, you know, you contemplate your body, you know, along with lots of other people, you know, with your dentist and your doctor. And, you know, you do this collective contemplation. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a lot of insight, does it? I mean, we contemplate our minds our whole life, don't we? Well, my mind is like that. That thought is so interesting, you know? My mind is so fascinating. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of insight. So we want to look at what are the insight factors? What are we meant to be understanding to this contemplation? How is it actually liberating? Well, the first instruction in the insight part of the first clue is when the Buddha says to contemplate the mind in the mind. To know the mind as mind. So what's really being encouraged here is a very non-reactive, non-judgmental seeing. Simply to know. Now in that quality of contemplation, there is no project and there is no agenda. It's not about fixing something. It's not about getting rid of something. It's not about evaluating or comparing. It's cultivating that inner capacity just to see, just to know. Think of it almost in acknowledging, allowing, accepting. Just to know the mind as the mind. So this means that we're actually letting go of a lot of our associations and added stories about our mind. You know, where did this come from? Why do I have this kind of mind? How do I get rid of it? You know, I should have this kind of mind. This is a good mind, a bad mind. We're actually letting go a lot of these associations with and stories about the mind, to know the mind as the mind. Now, the part, the, 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 I mean, this is actually a big piece of the insight of my mind is not myself. As obvious as that might seem, it's not always obvious. It's very often, I mean, this is what is really meant in many of these contemplations in the Satipatthana Sutta, is to look at that belief system. I am my body, my body is myself. I am my mind, my mind is myself. I am my feelings, my feelings are myself. 
to contemplate the mind as the mind is actually really to question that level of identification and clinging. It is not the thoughts that create suffering. It is the identification that creates suffering. It is the selfing within the thoughts and within the mind that creates so much pain. I am like this, I am like that. You are like this, you are like that. To contemplate the mind as the mind. Also, it says to contemplate the mind just enough, just enough for bare knowledge. Just enough for bare knowing. So in a way, we're not feeding, we're not feeding the mental states. We're not feeding them with identification. There's acknowledging, allowing, accepting. Another of the insights that the Buddha encourages in this contemplation is to see the arising and passing of the mind. To see the arising and passing, the changing mental states, moment to moment. Born of conditions. You know, one time the Buddha said, just as, you know, like the footprint of the elephant is the greatest of all footprints in the animal world, the contemplation of impermanence is the most powerful of all insights. And there is something about really deeply, experientially seeing the impermanence of mental states, the changing nature of mental states. I mean, I think there's a lot of profound implications in that scene. I mean, what does impermanence, what is it actually telling us? What would it be like for us to live our lives in the light of impermanence? What does it mean to understand the implications of impermanence, that nothing stays the same for more than a moment, and that the only thing that keeps anything fixed in this world is actually our view of it? What does it truly mean? What is the implications of seeing this changing mind moment to moment? Well, actually, it means really a lot of very natural letting go. A lot of not sticking, not trying to hold on to things, not feeling like we have to get rid of anything not feeling like we have to push anything away, to know the waves of arising and passing, not being passive, but to know that so deeply, the Buddha said the central insight in that knowing is that nothing, nothing can be clung to as me or mine. This is a central insight in the teaching of, of impermanence and in the understanding of impermanence, that nothing can be clung to as me or mine. And he said the very deep understanding of that is actually the liberation of the mind. It's the liberation of the mind. Going back to the discernment piece, it's very interesting that there's this kind of, you know, as you know, Buddhist teaching is full of lists. But it was very clear about listing the afflictive mental states. And why? Because they are the mental states that lead to suffering. And if we know that these afflictive mental states lead to suffering, 
then it wouldn't be wise, would it, to feed them. It would be much wiser to understand them and to let go. Now, when we when it also talks about contemplating the mind internally and externally, people are often very confused about that. But my understanding of that is that we're really looking at the universality of mind. What a mind can experience and the potential of the mind. I mean, surely you don't think that you are the only person in the universe who experiences aversion or anxiety. Look externally. You see the universe is filled with minds that experience aversion and anxiety. So he listed these afflicted states of mind, not as a basis for judgment, but as a basis for cultivating the kindness of understanding and letting go. Because afflictive states of mind basically lead to further affliction. Greed, these are the big ones, greed can be for food, for fantasy, for meditation attainments. Aversion, the pushing away, trying to get rid of, the hating. Delusion, just the sense of confusion, of just... You know, just not knowing where we are or what's going on. Contractedness, dullness, identification. Distractedness, distractedness, a sense of unsettledness. To know these afflictive states of mind is actually the beginning of cultivating skillful states of mind. To actually know them. In the Anapanasati Sutta, where the Buddha talks about this whole development of the, of the collected mind, speaks about it in a slightly different way, but again begins with knowing. Knowing the mind of the moment. But then it talks about gladdening the mind of the moment. Gladdening the mind. Connecting with that which is bright, calm, collected, spacious, calming the mind of the moment and then releasing the mind. She means releasing the stickiness, releasing the holding, releasing the identification. I mean, fortunately in our life, we don't really have to go very far to undertake this contemplation of the mind. We really only need to look to the moment we are in. The mind of this moment. It's actually where, where suffering and the end of suffering is really born. It is to have that sense of immediacy in the contemplation of the mind. And remembering that the contemplation of the mind, again, is in the service of this one direction and this one outcome. The liberation of the mind. The release of the mind. Okay. Thank you. It's lunch in a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.